If the brain expects that a treatment will work, it sends healing chemicals into the bloodstream, which facilitate that. That's why the placebo effect is so powerful for every type of healing. And the opposite is equally true and equally powerful. When the brain expects that a therapy won't work, it doesn't. It's called the nocebo effect, and it causes one to embrace the void. If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 231 of Embrace the Void, where the medical benefits are already taking effect. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we're talking sugar pills. So let's hop into the control group. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is Mike Hall, co-host of Skeptics with a K and one of the directors of the UK Skeptic magazine. Mike, would you like to say hi to the void? Uh, hello, void. I hope you're doing well, Void. <laughs> How, great. How's the Void doing these days? Doing great. We finally managed to get you on to chat about a topic that I've spent a lot of time listening to you uh, go into great detail on on shows like Skeptics with a K. So I'm excited. So before we get into our main discussion today, this issue of placebos, do you want to tell folks a bit about your background and how you got into skepticism? Yeah, so I, I got, like a lot of people, I suppose, I got into skepticism via atheism and I got in it via, specifically via the God Delusion uh, mm. by Richard Dawkins, um, Richard Dawkins' book. I was going on a business trip to the, to the Isle of Man, which is this tiny little island between Great Britain and Ireland. And mm -hmm. I'd never flown before. I'd never flown in my life. And I knew I wanted, it, it turns out this is only like a 45 minute flight but I'd never flown in my life before. And so I decided I wanted some reading material to, to, to have on the plane to stop me kind of feeling anxious about the flight. So I, and I, I spotted the God delusion in a, in a shop and said, I'll buy that. I'll get that. And I'll read that. And I read that and I really enjoyed it. And I got very enthusiastic as a lot of people did around 2006 about kind of atheism and new atheism and all that sort of stuff. And that led to me finding various podcasts about it. And that kind of led me into eventually the kind of skeptical, side of that which mm -hmm. ultimately i kind of felt suited me better um in terms of an approach to things in terms of being evidence-led and ma it, it, it mattering what's true and what isn't true mm -hmm. but I, so, so i kind of came in via via the atheist thing and, and i look back oddly enough at the god delusion now and think it's so it's so poorly written a book <laughs> I was going to say, I really appreciate you being so earnest about your cringy origin story right up yeah. front like this. <laughs> Why do you feel like skepticism fit you better? I, I think it was something that has always 
been a thing for me is it is it's important to me what is true it's important to me what 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 is what is true what we can show to be the case um rather than um what we would like to be the case and and, and what would be nice and what would be happy and god was a a, a big part of that and uh, there's a there's a story that my parents like to tell of while i was at school i'd have been 10 years old 11 years old and in the middle of a school uh, assembly, I put my hand, I interrupted the teacher in the middle of prayers and said, because we have prayer in school here, mm-hmm. I interrupted my teacher in the middle of prayers and said, uh, actually, it's uh, the Big Bang Creator Universe. So you're wasting your time with this, with this <laughs> business. So, And I thought mm-hmm. I was doing him a favor. I thought I was no. really helping him out. I thought, you know, here you go. I, you've wasted so much time on this. So here you go. You don't need to anymore. <laughs> you're so earnest about it <laughs> and i i was and this this resulted in people being uh, my parents being summoned to the school and we need to talk about this and you know there is there is a problem and uh, all all this sort of stuff and i was utterly oblivious to all of this happening i i had no no clue i just thought oh I really was, i was helping my you, didn't, you didn't get famous off of being canceled that seems like it's the, that would have been a really key moment for you to get a lot of clout uh getting <laughs> called up in that kind of way that wasn't i guess it wasn't yeah. a thing quite back then yet so what were like specific things besides sort of disbelief in God within the skeptical world that like have caught your attention or you've you've kind of gotten sucked into those particular rabbit holes? Uh, the the first thing, you know, once I kind of got over the God thing and was like, yeah, well, OK, fair enough. It was alternative medicine mm. on alternative medicine was a really big deal for me. And it was one of the reasons why at Merseyside Skeptics, we focused so hard on homeopathy um early on mm-hmm. we did a lot of work with homeopathy with a 1023 campaign and that a lot of that was to do with uh, alternative medicine being a kind of there was something in the air about alternative medicine in the early 2000s there was a lot of skeptical activity around it especially around chiropractic um and and homeopathy there was an awful lot going on around that mm-hmm. and so that that was what really caught my eye as kind of like yeah but is this is this true or is this not true especially because and and i'm i'm an autistic man and so stuff that doesn't make sense to me i really struggle with and I, mm-hmm. you look at these alternative medicine modalities and they're all mutually contradictory one of them says that you know it's it's innate intelligence that flows through your musculoskeletal system and 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 that's the cause of all disease another one says oh chi is the cause of all disease another one mm-hmm. says it's miasmas and, and, and so on and so forth and it's like well they can't all be right they could all be wrong but they can't all be right mm-hmm. And so it it was that kind of the 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 mutual. The only thing they seem to agree on is that the mainstream view was wrong. It mm-hmm. was the only commonality between the various alternative medicine practitioners, and they seem to they seem to enjoy quite happily associating with each other, even though they believe fundamentally different things about the way the universe works. But right. because they all disagree that mm. uh, that the mainstream view was wrong, they that they they seem to be able to put that to one side. Yeah, and that's a kind of feature of these heterodox communities that y'all have talked about a lot on, like, Skeptics with a K, with, like, the flat earthers all having their differently shaped earths, but as long as you don't believe in the round earth, you're part of the team or something like that. And, and like, the the homeopathy stuff in particular, and y'all have done actual work that has actually impacted people's, you know, ability to promote potentially, you know, non-effective treatments, you know, ties into our, our main discussion today, which is this more mainstream idea that there is this placebo effect and that it seems like that is often tied to these various things. Now, before, before we talk about the placebo, I want to make really clear for folks, 
what is your sort of background in terms of like your training and experience? Do you, you're not like a, in any way medically trained or something like that, right? Yeah, my, my background in this is effectively non-existent. I'm not medically mm -hmm. trained. I'm, a, I'm not trained in reading scientific papers, except through practice, except through having read a lot of them. I, I'm a software developer and the, mm -hmm. the world is falling over themselves with overconfident software developers who, who think they know better <laughs> than the experts in that field. Right. You can code, you can do anything, right? Yeah. Uh, and and it, because we treat everything like it's an engineering problem. And so mm -hmm. you, you get folks like the, the guy who invented Soylent, where he said, OK, nutrition's an engineering problem. So I'm just going to put all the chemicals I need in a bottle and drink that and see how long it takes me to get sick. And he treated it like a software problem and the world is falling over itself with overconfident mm -hmm. software developers. Yeah. And I try not to fall into that trap. I recognize my own lack of expertise here and I go out of my way to try and explore. Hey, could I be wrong about this? Can someone mm -hmm. show me why I'm wrong? Explain to me why I'm wrong. And if someone convinces me, then I'm then I'm convinced. But so far, I've not I've not been convinced. Right. And I, you know, I ask about this partly because I think it's, you know, valuable to sort of caveat our conversation with like, this is some, you know, you are an interested amateur in this kind of way. Yeah. Um, but I also think there is a bit of a funny thing here where like, you know, we skeptics often sort of push back on this idea of do your own research, right? That like that, that's a common catchphrase amongst conspiracists these days, a lot of the time. Yeah. And I was wondering if it ever sort of gets messy in your own head about like, how am I different from that in terms of, am I just a guy doing my own research in this way? Oh God. Yes. It drives me crazy. It really uh -huh. does. Cause I, 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 I'm fully aware that on this issue, I strongly resemble a crank. I'm, I'm fully aware <laughs> that, that, that that is the case. Mm -hmm. Um, and the thing that I think is, is trying to, um, that I'm using to try and keep me out of that crank space is fully mm -hmm. recognizing that I might be wrong about this, that I might be talking uh -huh. absolute nonsense, and that I'm fully prepared to change my mind and eat humble pie um, as soon as I'm convinced that I am wrong about this. I don't think I am. Um, but okay. if someone shows that I am, it's like, all right, I hold my hands up, folks. I, I messed this up. <laughs> I'm sorry. Right. Um, which is something that I'm not sure you see a lot from the, the, the people who are usually in that mindset of, um, hey, I've noticed something that all the experts in the world have missed. Yeah, well, it's tricky, right? Because they will all, I think, say, hey, look, if you show me this is wrong and convince me, then I'll change my view. Like everybody, literally, literally all humans will say that, I think, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, there really isn't a solution to the problem. It's more just like I was curious how you personally sort of cope with that. I, I do think you're right that like to some extent all you internally can do, whether whether you can prove it to anybody else is try to stay sort of open about the possibility that you are very wrong about this issue um so okay let's talk about the issue itself now what is your actual position on placebos because i think i feel like there's a lot of different ways this gets characterized potentially and i want to understand exactly how you would describe your thesis about placebo effect so i think the placebo effect is an illusory artifact of the research process um that that's where the placebo effect comes from um, and this comes about mostly as a result of the fact that clinical trials, the way clinical trials are done, they're not set up to measure the placebo effect. They're set up to control for the placebo effect, which are two very different things. Um, so when we have a, if we, if we go back to basics on the idea of, you know, just a, a standard straightforward mm -hmm. drug trial, if you've mm -hmm. got, um, a drug trial, uh, 
you've got a new novel intervention that you're that you're trying to test you would classically take a whole bunch of people and you split them into two groups random randomly split them into two groups and in one group you would put um uh one group would receive the new novel intervention mm-hmm. and the other group would receive a dummy intervention a placebo a, a, a fake pill that looks like the real one um mm-hmm. and the reason you do this is that you want the only difference between those two groups to be the effect of the drug you want mm-hmm. in in the control group you want them to get absolutely everything the same you don't want it to be the case of say say someone takes a pill with a glass of water and it turns out it was the glass of water that was actually causing the difference so you want to make sure they're both taking it with a glass of water at the same time at the same you know it's it was the mm-hmm. act of swallowing somehow or, or whatever it, 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 it there's all <laughs> of this mass of uncontrolled and uncontrollable variables that you mm-hmm. do your best to try and make sure that both groups get exactly the same treatment, except for one of them gets the active intervention and one of them doesn't. Mm-hmm. And both groups are going to get better when you do that. Um, and there's lots of reasons why people in both groups are going to get better. So the the most obvious one is um, the natural course of the disease. If you're doing an experiment on on a new treatment for a cold, and you give you you get two people and you split split them into two groups and you give half of them a new intervention you give half of them a dummy pill and then you wait two weeks everyone's better because mm-hmm. a cold mm-hmm. gets better in two weeks um it's not because the placebo mm-hmm. was so, somehow activated the body's innate healing response or, or anything along those lines it's just colds get better in two weeks and this happens to an awful lot of conditions is they just they'll improve over time they 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 just mm-hmm. do they will um or they'll improve partially in some of their symptoms or something like that, and then things might get worse again or something, right? But like the idea is there could be a lot of a lot of variation that people are reporting yeah. that could get attributed yeah. here to placebos. And that's a that that's another effect is you you it's if you're dealing with a chronic condition, you very often get um this this statistical effect called regression to the mean, where mm-hmm. you have good days and you have bad days, and sometimes you have you know a few good days on the run, and sometimes you have a few bad days on the run. But over a long enough timeline, you're you're going to regress back to that mean state, the kind of the average state of your condition. And on the face of it, that might not seem like something that's going to cause a placebo response because you're going to have as many people having bad days as there are people having good days. And so between them, if your numbers are big enough, they're they're going to average out. But that turns out not to be the case. And the the reason that's not the case is you don't enroll in a clinical trial on a good day. You enroll Mm. in a clinical trial on a bad day because that's when you (laughs) went to the hospital saying, look, things are really bad. What can I do? That's when you Mm. went to your GP saying, I'm feeling really bad. And they referred you into the trial. And so the first thing that's going to happen is you're having a bad day, you're going to regress to the mean. So immediately you're going to improve straight away. Um, not because of anything mm-hmm. the placebo has done, not because of anything the active drug has done, just that statistical effect of the way these symptoms wax and wane over time. So these are some of the examples of the kind of like ways in which this artifact arises out of all these kinds of studies just to help folks be really clear how would you say that your like understanding of the placebo is different the placebo effect is different from what you see as like the mainstream conventional view about the placebo effect so when you're doing these kind of trials where you've got a kind of an active intervention and 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 a dummy arm people in the dummy arm are going to get better and 
there are reasons why people in the in in the dummy arm, in the placebo arm, in the control arm, uh, uh, those are reasons why those folks are going to get better. And the natural course of the disease might be one of them. Um, regression to the mean might be another one. Um, when you tot up the total amount of um, uh, effects that 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 go into that, that contributes to that improvement that you see in the in the um, mm -hmm. placebo arm. There's a certain amount left over of what people refer to as the true placebo effect. People who are in, in, in research refer to that as the true placebo effect. The placebo effect being the way it's commonly understood of you, because you think you're going to improve, you will improve as a kind of mind over matter sort of situation where your expectations influence your health outcomes, which is how placebo is characterized by an awful lot of people, including academics including clinicians including science writers it's it's a way that is very commonly perceived as that your expectations influence um true medical outcomes and so the the evidence for this is when you look at the placebo arms of clinical trials people do improve and my contention is is that if you account for all of these effects and biases and uh croft and other non-specific nonsense I think the value of that so-called true placebo effect is nil. I think that the value of that is zero. Um, and it is it is only as a result of these biases and other non-specific effects. Do they, uh, the folks who believe in the sort of true placebo effect, do they give sort of consistent or differing or any causal sort of mechanistic explanations of like how this mind over matter thing is happening is it just like because i took a sugar pill my brain released more dopamine and so i felt better or something like that uh, not in any consistent sense that i've seen there was one of the things that that got me started talking about placebos on my on my podcast on skeptics with a k was an article that appeared in the guardian a few years ago was written by a neuroscientist called Daniel Glasser, who now I think he's, he's director of engagement at the Royal Institution or something like that. He's he's not an idiot. He's you know he's he's a mm -hmm. guy who knows his stuff. But he wrote this article for the um, uh, for the Guardian um, a few years ago. I think it was 20, 2014, 2015, something like that. And in this article, he said, whenever he's coming down with a cold, he likes to say to, people people will say when they're coming down with a cold. Oh, I'm coming down with a cold. He likes to say, I'm fighting off a cold. And he then justifies mm. this by saying that just the language that you're using will change your expectations and so do something to your cold. And he's very non-specific about this was about what this was, but did mm -hmm. say that something about saying I'm fighting off a cold instead of I'm coming down with a cold will somehow impact and change your cold. And then he goes on to say, and scientists don't understand the placebo effect, but, you know, this is what it is. And this is the kind of effects that it can have. And his only justification that he presented in this was nerves. The brain is connected to the body. And therefore, this, mm -hmm. this, this, and when it's a no more detail than that, no more specifics than that, other than nerves, somehow, somehow nerves, the nervous system goes to the whole body. It's like, well, how, how, how does thinking I'm getting better? And I'm very mm -hmm. reductionist about this, right? How does thinking you're getting better what does it actually yeah. do? Does it produce more antibodies? Does it are there more are there more T cells? There, you know, what what's it, what does this actually do? What is it? And there is no specific mechanism for this. It's all about your expectations influence your health outcomes. With mm -hmm. no and and this is why people say it's you know the mysterious power of the placebo effect because there is no mechanism proposed for this. The mechanism I propose for it 
is that it's a series of statistical errors and biases that give an yeah. illusion of a real effect, but there is no real effect there. Gotcha. I mean, I ask about this because the way this is talked about, and I think, you know, there are a lot of folks who are, you know, like pretty strict materialists, right? They don't believe in sort of mind-body dualism or a soul or anything like that as yeah. like a factor here who probably still believe that there's a placebo effect and they just assume that there's some sort of, like I said, dopamine or serotonin or like yeah. something physical is happening when you think that way that mm -hmm. is impacting your outcomes. And you're saying that there just like isn't any consistent evidence for any sort of mechanism like that? Certainly, there's no argument made for any consistent mechanism of it. It's and and, and there, there probably shouldn't be because the placebo effect is not one thing. It's 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 a dozen different things, two dozen different things, five hundred different things. There's there's all sorts of effects that make up this apparent improvement that you see in the placebo arms of clinical trials. Mm -hmm. And and just to return to the point that I made before, a lot of clinical trials um, out there aren't set up to um, measure the placebo effect. They're set up to control for the placebo effect. There are some yeah. trials that are set up to measure the placebo effect, and those trials have got a no treatment arm. And so you, you have a group that actually receives no treatment at all, as mm -hmm. well as having a group that receives placebo. And that allows you to see the effect of placebo, because the difference between those groups is, you know, this group thinks they're getting a treatment and this group doesn't. Mm -hmm. And when you look at those trials, for objective outcomes, for, for objectively measurable outcomes, there is no difference between the no treatment people and the placebo people. They have mm -hmm. exactly the same outcomes. For subjective endpoints, which is, is cases where the opinion of the patient or the clinician can influence what is recorded in the study, there does seem to be a small effect there. But we can't distinguish that effect from just biased reporting. We can't tell the difference between is there an effect or is there a report of an effect? And mm -hmm. we can't distinguish between those two situations right now. So why then, like, why do our beliefs about placebos matter, I guess, is the next question I want to ask. It's just like, you know, why not just let people believe that there is a placebo effect and like we don't understand the mechanism, but, you know, there is a small subjective difference. And that's like, you know, it's better than nothing. So just let people keep believing in this thing. So there's there's two reasons for that. One is a very fundamental somebody is wrong on the internet situation. Okay. Uh, where I just have to go out and go, no, 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 that's right. It's exactly the same as when I was 10 telling the teacher, oh, you don't need to worry about this God thing. It's just, I, I feel like I'm helping people out, um, okay. which which I'm probably not. I'm probably just really annoying folks. We'll probably agree that's not the strongest argument for- Absolutely, for yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, the other reason and the more important reason why it really matters is that having worked for a long time in dealing with and tackling um, proponents of alternative medicine, when they're absolutely backed into a corner, when you've absolutely pinned them down and, and, and try to say, you know, okay, t you know, tell me how this works, give me the evidence that it works, give me the data that this works, they will fall back on when you absolutely pin them down. Well, if it, even if it's just a placebo effect, we know the placebo effect works, and so that's okay. And so it's used as a justification for these nonsense interventions that are used to exploit people and take money from people and, you know, mm -hmm. turn, you know, patients into victims, which is something that just, you know, rankles me personally. Um, it's, it's like the, um, 
It's not the last refuge of a scoundrel. It's the last refuge mm -hmm. of, of alternative medicine. When you when they've got nowhere else to go, they'll cry placebo. And right now, when that happens, the skeptical community, other than the folks mm -hmm. paying attention to me, go, oh well, fair enough, free to go. Um, yeah. And I know. So I, I, when people go and give talks about homeopathy, Marsh, who does um, skeptics with a K, mm -hmm. with me, when he goes out and lectures on the on the stuff that he's doing with homeopathy, every single time. There's a hand goes up in the audience at the Q&A and says, yeah, homeopathy is just a placebo, but placebo effects are really powerful. So homeopathy is really mm -hmm. powerful. So it's fine. So what's a problem? And that's that's just not true. Mm -hmm. Now, are you more like giving a pass to the subjective, the ones who will say, like, look, all my treatment does is that tiny subjective thing or something that you were referencing um and, and like your is like your issue mainly with people who will say this power you know bridges over into like objectively better outcomes or do you feel like it's problematic in both cases so there's a very good study um which was a study um conducted um um in the u.s a few years ago and it was um it was called active albuterol um uh, uh, placebo or sham acupuncture versus no treatment uh, for the treatment of asthma. Mm -hmm. And what happened in this study is they got a bunch of people who had asthma and over the course of several weeks, they came in and they gave them one of four interventions. Um, they gave them um, an albuterol inhaler, which is called sal salbutamol in the EU, but it's albuterol in the US, um, which is just your standard asthma medication that you get. Sure. They gave them a placebo inhaler, which just, just did nothing. It was, I don't know what was in it, whether it was you know, saline or water or whatever, but a, a fake inhaler. Acupuncture, which turns out to be because one of the authors is an acupuncturist, so he just threw that in there for, for the bands. Sure. Um, uh, and no treatment. This group just, just received no treatment. And the group were asked to rank the, um, uh, to rank how better they felt after the intervention. Mm -hmm. And to the greatest extent possible, it was done blinded, but obviously you can tell when you're in the no treatment group and you can tell when you're in the acupuncture group, but you, you shouldn't be able to tell the difference between the two inhalers. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that um, inhalers work. That's that's good. That's 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 happy news, right? Positive. Um, the placebo inhaler. So I think they, the the participants reported a fifty percent improvement from when they arrived at the clinic to after taking the intervention. They reported a fifty percent improvement in their in their condition. Um, and is that is that large for a reported sort of placebo group? response uh, so that that was the active intervention group was was 50 okay. improvement okay the placebo group was 45 percent improvement so almost the same as the mm -hmm. active intervention which mm -hmm. which was really that's like wow that's that's huge that's a big deal in fact there was no statistically significant difference between the active treatment and the placebo group and that's mm. so that's that's massive right that's what you've proved there is inhalers don't work is that salbutamol <laughs> is a waste of time because right. the, there is no statistically significant difference between albuterol yeah. and um, placebo. That you, you, you really modus tollens of that one, haven't you? Um, and then uh, the acupuncture group, they did very similarly. They did, you know, 45, 46%. And then no treatment was down at like 20%, you know, ba barely any improvement. I feel a little bit better, but there's a bunch of reasons why that could be. Just, you know, you've had a sit down and a cup of tea and a biscuit, whatever. You you know, you're feeling a little better with your, your asthma than when you first arrived at the clinic. Mm -hmm. That was on the subjective patient reports. Do you feel any better? 
They also took objective measurements. They, they took a measurement called forced, forced expiratory volume, which is just how hard can you blow into a tube? So you just blow mm -hmm. into this tube as hard as you can. And they actually took an objective measure of that. And when you look at those data for the albuterol, there was a 21% improvement in, um, their, in their lung function, in their uh, objectively measured lung function. No treatment, only a 7% improvement. Again, because you've had a cup of tea, whatever, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the placebo and the acupuncture were the same as no treatment. They were at 7.1 and 7.3%, not statistically significantly different from no treatment. When they when you've got that objective measure, there was no I difference see. from no treatment. On the subjective measure, inhalers don't work. But on the objective <laughs> measure, inhalers work really well. I see. I see the point you're making. Yeah. You know? And that <laughs> right. I think that's a really important finding. Now there's mm -hmm. there's a very special case here, which is for pain. Right. And pain is a pain's a peculiar thing, right? Because our experience of pain is entirely subjective. No one mm -hmm. can tell you how much pain you are or aren't in. We do have things where you can stick functional MRIs on people and things, but it's a, it's a really blunt instrument. It's it's kind of measuring blood flow. It's 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 not it's not brilliant. Um but no one can tell you what, what amount of pain you're in. And the amount of pain that you're in is varied by an awful lot of things, including your mood, including your psychological mm -hmm. state. If you're very stressed, you might feel more pain or feel like you're less able to cope with the pain that you're in, in the way that if you're in a great mood, the same amount of pain, the same objective pain signal doesn't mm -hmm. bother you that much. And so when you're dealing with somebody who's struggling with pain, that subjective improvement might be enough. That might be fine. That might be good enough. Is that okay? You know what? If 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 this subjectively helps you, that's that's fair enough. That's good enough. In the case of pain, probably in a very similar case for for nausea as well. Um, again, no one can tell you how nauseated you feel. It's just you you feel it and you can cope with it to different extents depending on um, how you're actually feeling about stuff. But. Mm -hmm. To take that beyond those very subjective experiences like pain and nausea into, okay, how, how are you feeling now after we've given you this fake inhaler? Those, those, those folks who think they're now better from the fake inhaler could still have a heart attack if someone just, you know, pops a paper bag behind them when they're not, when they're not right. paying attention. You know, they're not actually improved. They just think they're improved. And that can be a dangerous thing. So, okay. So let me ask then, it seems like it puts you in a an ethical quandary kind of situation, right? As a skeptic, you don't want to promote false beliefs, but it sounds like you might at least be arguing that we could potentially say, look, a placebo is better than nothing for pain, right? If you have no other thing to give them besides a sugar pill and you could tell them that it's actually an, you know, a pain reliever and it will reduce their pain slightly, is it ethical to do that? Or do you feel like you would want to resist the urge to do that even in that subjective situation? I would, in, in within healthcare, I would always lean towards don't mislead your patient about what you're doing. Um, mm -hmm. As say, no, you know, giving someone a, 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 a fake pill and telling them it's a real drug, I think is a fundamentally unethical thing to do in, in healthcare. Totally ethical thing to do in clinical trials. That's what we do all the time. Um, right. But that's kind of part of the contract when you sign up for a clinical trial. You know, it's like going to see a stage magician, right? You know they're going to lie to you as part of the mm. as part of the protocol, as part of the deal. But in mm -hmm. in in clinical care, I think it's a totally unethical thing to do. Now, there are some studies that suggest that placebos work even when you know. 
the, the, I was going to ask. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. These the so-called open label placebo trials, which mm -hmm. I've I very glibly dismissed this as open label is the same thing as we didn't do any blinding, and we we know blinding makes a difference. Um, mm -hmm. We know from like the the philosophy of science, we know that, that there's a reason why we blind trials, um, and it's because we figured out that when you don't, that has an impact. Mm -hmm. And so open-label placebo trials, effectively trials where we didn't do any blinding. Well, of course, you're going to find a difference between the groups. That's why we blind in the first place. But also when you look in detail at these um, so-called open-label trials, there's, I've got two criticisms of the way these, these trials are generally conducted. And one of, uh, one of those criticisms is they say to the patients, this is a placebo, this is inert without necessarily mm -hmm. checking that the patient understands what the word inert means. That, do they understand that inert means doesn't do anything? This will do nothing to you. Does the patient mm -hmm. understand that? Because otherwise, you, you, you could just be throwing jargon at them that they don't understand, that they don't necessarily understand. And doctors and clinicians are particularly bad for that, which is not because they're nasty people. It's just when you use jargon like that all the time, you don't realize that it's jargon anymore. And so right. you, you're just casually throwing it Familiar out. Familiar with the problem, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other problem that I've got with that is quite frequently this um, these open-label placebo trials, even though they claim, oh, we told everyone it was placebo and it was fine, they also come with a 15-minute lecture about how brilliant placebos are and how you can totally expect that this is going to make a difference. And that introduces, reintroduces, I suppose, all of the biases um, that can cause the apparent placebo effect that that appears in clinical trials. So you've you've got effects like um, the subject expectancy effect, where uh, the uh, the patient is more likely to report what they think that should be happening rather than what is actually happening. Um, mm -hmm. You've got um, uh, the observer expectancy effect, which is kind of the, the same thing on the clinician side. You've got um, uh, demand characteristics um, where the um, uh, where the patient is more likely to report what they think the clinician wants to hear. You know the, right. kind, the kind of people pleasing thing. You've Standard got, validity threat kind of things. Yeah, you've got the Hawthorne effect. You've got you know where where people will behave differently just because they're in you know within a clinical trial now, mm -hmm. um, and so they'll behave differently on that. And you, there's another effect called um, uh, recall bias, where it's like okay write down how bad you feel now and then in three hours time we'll ask you again to write down how bad you feel then and mm -hmm. if you misremember how bad you felt three hours ago you're mm -hmm. going to re report something incorrect you're going to report something differently and even though you're quantifying that even though it's kind of meant to be a snapshot of how do you feel right now if i put down a six out of ten three hours ago and now i'm convinced that i feel a little bit better I'm going to put mm -hmm. a number that's lower than six out of 10 in terms of how bad I feel. You know, I've, I felt six out of 10 nauseous before I'm four out of 10 nauseous. Now I might feel exactly the same thing and I'm just misremembering how bad I felt earlier, mm -hmm. but I'm going to write down a different number and that can introduce a bias into the trial as well. That makes sense. Speaking of sort of terminology, I want to get clear about what you were saying about blinding there. Um, because folks might not understand what you mean when you say that like this couldn't be a blinded study. Is it like so you have these open label where they tell them that it's a placebo and it's that versus nothing? Is there no way that you could construct that study so that you had effective blinding? Uh, or am I just not like 
or am I just not people just not doing that at present? The studies that I've read, that's not the way that's being done. Is is mm-hmm. it would be a difference? The 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 difference is you get nothing at all, or you get the, um, uh, or you get the placebo. Now, if if and and with the placebo comes this lecture about how brilliant placebos are. Um, mm-hmm. Now, if I'm correct about the way this 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 works, and I'm not the only person saying this, you know, that like the the Cochrane collaboration, which is a very well respected, well regarded. Um, organization that produces systematic reviews and meta-analyses of, of kind of the totality of the medical literature. This is also their position, um, mm-hmm. is that there is no objective placebo effect. There is a small effect that is um, uh, occurs in subjective outcomes, but it's really unreliable and probably is just bias. So if I'm right about the, the way this placebo mechanism works, um, then it would be the case that um, on an objective measure, an open label placebo shouldn't make any difference. But right now, they're only doing subjective tests, which partly I think is because the folks who are doing the placebo effect research are starting to realize that this only seems to affect subjective outcomes. And again, mm-hmm. my contention is that it affects subjective outcomes because it's a modification of people's biases and a modification mm-hmm. of um uh, the the figures that are written down, not necessarily the figures that not not necessarily how the patient is actually is actually mm-hmm. feeling, mm-hmm. Um, and I think those are different things, and those are things that we need to be aware of. Okay, that makes sense. So I was listening to you chatting about this on more or less recently, and there's another sort of wrinkle that's come up in the discourse around placebos, which is this idea that placebos are getting stronger. Um, And this is related to an issue around sort of the additive nature of how these things work. Can you kind of unpack a little bit what's going on and and what your theory is about what's going on there? So most of the reporting around this seems to be um, a report. It's all a report on the same paper, which was a, a 2015 paper that looked at the apparent increase in the, the, the power of placebo between 1990 and 2013. Uh, so what what the authors did is they they took a bunch of um, uh, painkiller studies. Again, pain great area to be researching the placebo effect because you will find the uh, those, mm-hmm. those subjective effects are kind of necessarily baked in there because we don't have an objective measure of pain. Mm-hmm. Um, so they took a bunch of pain studies um, published between 1990 and 2013, and what they found was that the treatment advantage, so how much better the treatment was compared to the placebo, in the 1990 studies was 27%. And the treatment advantage by the time you got to 2013 was only 9%. Um, so the And the total treatment effect remained the same. The total treatment effect was... Um, consistent across that entire period but just the placebo effect seemed to be getting larger and larger and larger um mm-hmm. and this has been characterized as placebos are getting more powerful and and there's there's negative consequences to this view to the, this this idea that placebos are getting more powerful because what we're seeing is this effect seems to be unique to the united states um the the, the this trial did not find the same effect in studies conducted outside the u.s and so what you're finding is um, U.S. pharmaceutical companies offshoring their clinical research because if they get this work done outside mm-hmm. the U.S., the placebo effect is smaller, which makes it more likely that their drug is going to beat placebo, which means they're more likely to get it approved by the FDA. Okay, so on the traditional view, the straight reading of that would be American minds are getting stronger in some way. 
the the explanation that's been given for this, and this was given in a um, a, a blog post by a, a Harvard professor somewhere. Harvard does a lot of placebo research, and maybe I'll talk a little bit about why that is later. Um, okay. But the the explanation given for this was that in the US, you have direct to consumer drug advertising. Um, which mm. is something that's illegal in most of the rest of the world. Um, I don't know most. That I don't know they nice. can back up most, but it's certainly a lot of other countries, it's illegal to do direct-to-consumer drug advertising. Um, and it's it's weird as well. This kind of ask your doctor about stuff, and then and then the guy reading out the side effects at high speed at the very end. We don't we don't get this in the rest of the world. We don't see this. Just um, feels like a normal day to us. <laughs> um, so the, the explanation was because of this direct-to-consumer drug advertising, patients are expecting more of their drugs. They're expecting you know, a, a greater effect of their drugs. And that increase in their expectation then hmm. increases the placebo effect that they feel when they think they're getting the drug, but they're not. Um, another possible um, explanation for this that's been given is that in the US, you use direct advertising to recruit for a study. So you you would uh, you you put an ad in the newspaper say hey come take part in our study we'll give you cash money you know you you can come and take part in the study and that will attract a certain class of person that is not necessarily representative of the general population, whereas mm-hmm. in the rest of the world it tends to be referrals through clinical practice is how you end up getting into a getting into a uh, a drug trial. Mm, um, interesting. I personally think that both of those things are absolute nonsense um and hmm. that the reason that this is happening the placebo effect is not getting larger what's happening is we're doing better studies mm. um that we are we are capturing non-specific effects in in our placebo arms in 2013 that we were missing in 1990 which means in 1990 we erroneously attributed those effects to the active intervention of the drug Mm-hmm. Whereas by 2013, we knew that actually they were nothing to do with the drug because we were capturing them properly in our placebo arms, and you, we can see this effect in the in the trial data because over this same period of time, the average duration of a study went from four weeks in 1990 to 12 weeks by 2013, and we know longer mm-hmm. studies are generally better. Longer studies are going to capture things like regression to the mean better. Um, longer studies. Um, uh, are going to be able, and they're also larger studies as well, so longer and larger studies, where these big numbers means that little aberrations that could skew your data tend to even out between the group, like statistically even out between the groups. Um, we haven't so, seen that same massive increase in trial duration in the rest of the world. So does that mean that instead of the placebo getting stronger, what we're discovering is that that the medicines just weren't as strong as we thought they were initially? Like the inhaler isn't worthless, but it's maybe not quite as effective as we thought it was? Yeah, exactly. It's it's mm-hmm. exactly that. It's that, you know, we, we thought this drug was much better back in the day, but actually it's not as good as we thought it was. Now, in many cases, it's still great. It's a 9% advantage over placebo, still 9% you weren't going to get. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than the the twenty seven percent advantage over placebo that we were seeing in nineteen ninety, and uh, the, I've got a one reason that I've not seen anybody tackle as to why um, I think that's the only sensible interpretation of these data. Okay. Um, uh, the reason that I think this is the active effect of the drug should be additive on top of the placebo effect. 
So you, you will have a particular placebo effect and that will be a result of biases and regression to the mean and natural course of the disease and all of those all of those other non-specific things that will result in an apparent improvement even when you've done nothing. And then on top okay. of that, you get the drug as well. Both arms of a clinical trial will experience a placebo effect. It's just mm -hmm. one of them also gets the drug. And that's kind of the point. That's why we do clinical trials the way we do. Is so we look at those two groups and we can tell the only difference between them is the drug. And so that's how strong we know the drug is, how effective we know that drug is. If it were the case that the placebo was getting larger, we should see the total treatment effect also getting larger because mm -hmm. the effect of the drug should be the same. If, if, if the placebo was um, uh, four out of 10 in 1990 and you got mm -hmm. another two for the effect of the drug, then right. when the placebo is six out of 10 in 2013, it should be another two for the effect of the drug. And it's now an eight out of 10 total. Um, that's the effect we should see if placebos were getting stronger. We don't see that. What we see is the placebo stealing effect from the active treatment, which is exactly what you would expect to see if it was because we're doing trials better now and we're capturing stuff in our control data that we previously were mistakenly attributing to the active treatment. Have you seen anybody give any sort of pushback to that argument in terms of an alternative explanation for that lack of additive growth? I haven't seen anyone um, give that argument except me okay. <laughs> so enough. far. So somebody would have to pay attention to you first before you would get an objection a response to that argument. Yeah, okay. um, I did have an interaction with uh, with with a chap on Twitter called Uwe Heiss, and Uwe runs a company called Zebo Effect, and they sell what they refer to as ethical placebos. Um, mm -hmm. They they sell you placebos, they tell you it's placebos, they say you decide what it treats, you decide what the dose because what you think is going to work is going to work. <laughs> this sounds extremely American. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And. I was on Twitter saying, hey, this should be additive. This should, you know, you should see an increase in the effect. And Uwe jumped into my replies and said, yeah, it is additive. Um, because you're right. That's exactly what you would see. And it is. You, so there is a there is an increase in the total effect size. And mm -hmm. so I re replied to Uwe saying, well, actually, no, we're, here's the paper that we're talking about. And it, it doesn't, it, like it specifically says, no, the total effect size was was the same. It's just the placebo mm -hmm. seemed to be stealing effect from the from the um, active intervention and he was really confused by this and said oh but i would have because it's additive so i would have expected the total treatment size to be getting bigger and um you know and and that's the closest i've had to any pushback on that is someone going yeah you're right oh, oh okay. but hang on a second <laughs> <laughs> and i assume the company still exists um yes he's still he's still doing his thing so he, he right. i obviously didn't persuade him um right but it's um uh, it, it, at least it maybe maybe was a little food for thought. Fair enough. So you mentioned in there this idea of expectations, and this is something that it seems like is often raised as a sort of further, like sort of a partners in crime kind of argument is the way I would think of it for the placebo, where it's compared to things like you know, the um, evidence that there's physical costs for coping with racism in society. You have negative expectations put on you. Mm. You have worse expectations about how your life's going to go. And that actually impacts how your life plays out in these various kinds of ways. It could impact you physically in these various kinds of ways. Do you think that that's a fair comparison? Um, it's not an area that I, I really feel like I've got any expertise in, but I suppose I'm in the, in the placebo effect either. Um <laughs> 
Um, certainly, again, it, it for me, it comes down to, you know, I'm a, a big old stupid reductionist. And so it's just, you know, yes, I can see why when people have lower expectations of, of their life and what they're able to achieve, that that's going to have effects. But uh, I don't think that's going to be a, a magical mind over matter effect like like they propose for the placebo. It's going to be, well, I'm not going to bother applying for that job because I'm obviously not going to get it because they're never going to give that job to folks like me. Um, mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons why the kind of the, the overconfident white man trope, um, is, is so accurate and so true because we just go out and do stuff and no one tells us you can't do that. So we go and do it anyway. Um, right. in a way that other people are like, well, I could, I could never do something like that. Um, we're, we're too stupid to realize that we can't. And so somehow get away with it. Um, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous. Right, but there's no sense in which, like, our mind is changing the matter of the universe and doing that. It's more just like, you know, we're we're, act, we're we're acting in these ways based on this. And so, like, maybe, you know, you could have a confidence placebo or something like that. Um, but again, we'd be back to, like, is it bad to trick people into, you know, basing yeah. their confidence on a sugar pill or something? And it, it, it reminds me very much of the of the of the free will argument of kind of like, OK, mm. what? What is a will and how does it actually affect the universe? Um, in much the same way, what is an expectation and how does it actually change the universe? How does how what does it actually do? How what what atoms change and move as a result of your expectation or as a result of you exerting your will? Because as best mm-hmm. we can see, that that doesn't happen and it's just stuff moves the way physics says. Mm-hmm. Are there any other like major pushbacks that you've seen on this issue or like specifically things that might keep you up at night still ones where you're like, I don't feel like I have a good response to this yet or something. There's nothing that I've seen that I feel like I've, I, so let's let, I'll rewind that a little bit. I first got interested in the placebo effect specifically when I heard a, a podcast by Mark Chrislip. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mark Chrislip used to do a podcast called Quackcast. I don't know if he's still doing episodes now, but one of his early episodes back in like 2004, 5, 6, something like that, he did an episode on the placebo effect. And he covered a um, a study which was uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2001 called Is the Placebo Powerless? And it was, this was the first study that found there is no objective placebo effect. There do seem to be subjective effects, but they're really inconsistent, really small and might be biased. Mm-hmm. And those are the, the people who did that paper, the same people who authored the Cochrane Review in 2010. They, they, in, As more research came out with a no treatment and a placebo arm, they incorporated that into their meta-analysis and continued. They published a new version in 2004, another version in 2010. They're still finding no placebo effect, no general therapeutic placebo effect in, in the literature. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I saw this and I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's That's curious. And then a couple of years later, I read the book Bad Science. A Bad Science, mm-hmm. a very popular, popular science book um, written by Ben Goldacre, who was um, the uh, very popular skeptic in kind of the early 2000s to um, to the 2010s. He turned up at um, every skeptic in the pub that you could think of. Um, he was on TV. He appeared on QI. He did the lectures at the Royal Institution. And he had a chapter in that book on the placebo effect, on these are all the magnificent miracle things that the placebo effect can do. And I couldn't square that with what I'd seen Mark Chrysler reporting mm-hmm. about how there is no objective placebo effect. And Ben Goldacre saying, but no, what about this paper and this paper and this paper? And so what I did was, 
okay, I'll go out and read the papers. I'll go out and actually look at the paper. So I'll, I would go out and find the paper and I'd read through the paper to see is there a real genuine therapeutic placebo effect evidenced in this paper? And what I found in almost every case was actually this was just studying subjective reports or actually this hadn't controlled for, you know, this factor or mm-hmm. whatever. There was always something in that paper that was like, oh, so that means it is consistent with the Cochrane review. It's it, it's not. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's it, this paper isn't the one that that makes me go, oh, OK, I guess I'm wrong then. And so far, every paper that I've looked at um, that I've been able to understand, and that's an important caveat, um, Mm -hmm. every paper that I've looked at that I've been able to understand um, has not disabused me of this notion that there is is no real therapeutic placebo effect. They're all consistent with Mm -hmm. the view that I have. Now, my view has slightly evolved as a result of this. So, for example, one of the things you see is there's a, a reasonably good evidence and reasonably good is probably overstating it uh, for a placebo effect Parkinson's disease um, where you yeah. give Parkinson's patients fake medication. So you withhold their medication and then you give them fake medication and their Parkinson seems to improve. And that's mm-hmm. obviously there's, there's measurable effects there where, you know, are they, are they tremoring more? Can they move properly? There's, there's all sorts of um, effects on Parkinson's that are not just a kind of a subjective psychological overlay on some, you know, qualia phenomena that we can't directly measure um and when i when i looked at that i I thought that was curious um the Mm -hmm. way that i've rationalized that to myself is that it turns out the treatment for parkinson's disease is dopamine agonists in order to treat parkinson's disease you give somebody dopamine i see um so you have a me- mechanistic explanation in this particular case. Absolutely, yeah. So if you withhold someone's medication and then give them their medication, they're going to go, oh, thank fuck for that. I really needed my medication. They're going to get a dopamine shot from that, which uh-huh. might s- improve their symptoms in, a, in in the short term. Uh-huh. Um, but obviously, there's only so many brain chemicals we can produce. You know, we, we can mm-hmm. produce... Um, um, endorphins and we can produce dopamine and we can produce serotonin, but we, we can't produce chemotherapy. You can't mm-hmm. you can't magically will yourself into cancer remission. Um, right. So there are cir- circumstances where a psychological intervention can plausibly have a physiological effect. Um, mm-hmm. Pain is one of those. Again, dopamine, uh, it's something that responds to dopamine. You could have that effect. But there are th- those are the exceptions rather than the rule, um, um, I would I would argue. So right. so and at that point, far... instead of a placebo, we'd call it a dopamine pill, it seems like. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so far I've not seen any evidence that has gone, that, that has made me go, oh, I can't explain that. And I think if I could, I'd probably throw my hands up and say, okay, I think I'm done. Mm-hmm. There's one caveat to that, one exception to that. And that's, there's, there's some, um, research that's been done by a researcher called Fabrizio Benedetti, which was an investigation of, um, uh, placebo and exercise. And so he had, I think he had people on a treadmill and he was giving mm-hmm. them oxygen and then he gave them fake oxygen where, you know, he, they thought they were getting pure oxygen and they weren't, but they performed as if they were doing better. And there were objective measurements that, that went along with that. Mm-hmm. That's not a paper that has persuaded me that there is no placebo effect, but it's also because it's a paper I haven't got my head around. I don't quite understand what he's doing. Um, and I might not have the training, the medical training to be able to understand what he's doing. But so mm-hmm. far, that's the only paper that I've 
read in earnest that I've not gone oh but that is actually consistent with what I've done but in this case it's because I haven't I haven't I haven't grokked the paper right I can't right. I can't quite get my head around how the paper works whereas a lot of these placebo effect studies are proper high school chemistry you know science 101 stuff mm-hmm. um which is very easy for even an idiot like me to understand <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, we're unfortunately just been out of time for the main show and um, have you stick around for a little bit of bonus stuff. But do you want to let folks who are interested in learning more about this, uh, besides obviously digging into the back catalog of Skeptics with a K, other resources that you would recommend that they might, things that were particularly helpful to you in the journey that you haven't mentioned yet? Um, uh, yeah, well, so I, I write articles about this for Skeptic Magazine, um, if, if and when one takes my fancy, so you can find several bits of stuff from me there. I'd also recommend Science-Based Medicine, uh, the Science-Based Medicine blog. The folks there are actually pretty mm-hmm. good on the placebo effect stuff as well. Um, that's one of the things that actually gives me a little bit of sucker here is the other medically trained skeptics who know their business are on their blog saying similar things, just kind of not as stamping their feet as loudly as I am about it. <laughs> Um, uh-huh. So science-based medicine's got some really good stuff on placebos as well. Okay, great. Well, Mike, this has been a lot of fun. Unfortunately, now I have to torture you. So <laughs> this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. I'm going to give you a series of things. You are going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Okay. Those are your only choices. You can't hedge. You don't get to explain what you mean, real or not real. Okay. Okay. Are you ready? Yep. <laughs> all right. First of all, let's find out. Is anything real? Yes. Okay, great. So let's find out what is real. The external world, real or not real? Yes, real. Colors, real or not real? Ooh. Real. Phenomenal consciousness? Real. Free will? Not real. Selves or persons? Oh, that's a tricky one. Real. <laughs> Genders? Um, uh, real. Okay. Races? Oh, probably not real. Uh, that might make me change my change my view on gender, actually. Um, <laughs> oh, you're going to say not real for genders as well? Then? <laughs> Maybe I will. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. I'll give it to you for this one, just because you've been nice. Uh, so <laughs> species? Um, oh, again, oh, it's torture. This is torture. This is literal torture. <laughs> you thought I was kidding, huh? Um, that's really tough. <laughs> yeah, real, I think. Okay. All right. Real it is. Morality? Uh, real. Rights? Real. Knowledge. Uh, real. God or gods. Not real. Society. Real. Money. Oh, um, what about cryptocurrency? <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, it's real. Yeah, money exists. Of course it exists. I okay. can touch it. N- numbers. Um, Real. Okay. Fictional characters? Oh, not real. <laughs> Holes, like a hole in the ground? Um, real. Okay. Chairs? Chairs are real. Sandwiches? 
Sandwiches are real. Science. Science is real. Natural laws. Uh, real. <laughs> Beauty. Real. <laughs> Love. Real. Causality. Real. And finally, time. Oh, that's a hard one as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, time's real. Sure. All right, you survived. How do you feel? Um, a mess. Um, yeah. That was much more difficult than I expected. You asked the hard questions. I was really looking forward to putting you through this one. I figured it would be particularly <laughs> entertaining. Uh, well, we'll you know we'll have a little chat afterwards about you know what your uh, what your feelings were about that. But um, do you want to let folks know in the meantime, um, folks for the main show where they can find your work? Yeah, so you'll find me every two weeks on the Skeptics with a K podcast. Um, you'll find us on um, Stitcher, on Apple Podcasts, you know, wh wherever you get your podcast from. At the moment, Spotify, but you know, who knows with the way things are going there. Um, uh, uh, yeah, we do. A, we put out a show every two weeks. We have done for the last twelve years, and we anticipate doing so for at least the foreseeable future. All right, and you've also, got, as you said, UK Skeptic Mag, and you don't do much of the like twittering, right? Um, people can follow me on Twitter if they like. I'm Mike Hall three one four on Twitter, so that's Mike Hall, and then the first three digits of Pi. Um, which is literally why why that's my name. Um, uh -huh. So I'm Michael314 on Twitter, but I mostly tweet about software development and Doctor Who. So if those are your things, hey, go crazy. <laughs> yeah, and for folks who want to hear more from Mike, he is a somewhat regular over on Philosophers in Space, where he is our resident expert on all things Doctor Who. Um, but this has been a lot of fun, Mike. I really appreciate it. And folks who want to hear a little bit more, um, you know, come join us in the VIP segment. Stick around. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. Thanks to our newest patron, Killed Jeff Bezos. I'm going to check with legal that we can actually say that. Uh, as always, I'd like to thank our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Jesse Urbanowitz and Brenda Goodman, Chad T. Any election lawyer want to pioneer a case on the California Fair Maps Act? Fix the vote. Dude, you think social media is toxic? You should try 150 nanograms of botulinum. And Lawrence Shielding. And all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons' Film Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, active treatment or no, you are the void and the void is you.